Happy birthday, Desert Springs. In uh, just a few weeks here, we are celebrating our 40th birthday. We were planted in 1977 by God's grace. And so for the next five weeks, we are looking at what it means to be a church. And so we're going to explore our mission of transforming people to impact their world for Christ and the five expressions of grace uh, that we believe God has called us to here at Desert Springs with growing in Christ reaching out, authentic relationships, compassionate service, and today we'll talk about exalting Christ. We're doing all this uh, through a series called Here is the Church, looking at the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 14 today. If you don't have a Bible and would like a paper version of a Bible, there are some available on the tables in the back. Also, if you're using a digital device, we're using the English Standard Version. That's the translation we'll be using today. We'll also have it up on the screen. And the reason that we are uh, looking at Ephesians and asking ourselves, uh, what does it mean to be the church, is because uh, too many of us can fall into the trap or the temptation of the old children's song, Here is the Church, Here is the Steeple. You guys remember that song? Some of y'all grew up in the church. Some of us didn't grow up in the church, and I'm so glad you're here today. Uh, you avoided this song in your childhood, and, and probably that's a blessing to you because the, church, the song goes like this. Here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the door and see all the people. That's heresy. I'm just kidding. It's just wrong. That's not true. This is not the church. The church is the people. You follow me? So that idea of here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door and see all the people. The people is the church, right? So here's the church, here's the steeple. That's the building that the church meets in. That just doesn't have quite the same snappiness. So I guess we'll keep the song the same. But the truth is that all of the followers of Jesus, that's the church. So when the scripture speaks about the church, it's the people. The church is the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is made up of people just like you and me. We are the church. And so I'm going to read through Ephesians 1, uh, 2 through 14. And what we're going to talk about this morning is the story that we find ourselves in, our part in that story, the end of the story, and the hinge of the story. So number one, the story that we find ourselves in. Number two, our part in that story. Number three, the ultimate end of the story. And finally, the hinge of the story. This is Ephesians 1, verses 2 through 14. I'll read it. I encourage you to read along with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions and sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. This opening salvo into the book of Ephesians, the author, who is a dude named Paul, he was a pastor, he's writing to this church in a place called Ephesus. This opening salvo is a doxology. You see uh, throughout the text words like praise. Did you guys hear praise, glory? You also heard things like plan and predestined. And so we, we have in this, uh, you have fullness of time. You have in this opening of the book of Ephesians, which was a letter, this letter to the Ephesian church, you have this magnificently comprehensive big view of like everything and the point of everything. You have, to put it another way, the story. Now the band Rush, of whom I am a great fan, is anyone else a fan of the band Rush? Can we hear some of you please? Let me know on my own. Everyone else, if you would like to find a church home elsewhere, I would be glad to give you some recommendations. No, I'm just kidding. Not many people like Rush, but those of us who have good taste, we do. And we, we know in the lyrics of Rush that uh, there's a lot of philosophical thought. And Rush uh, leverages one of the Shakespearean quotes when they say in one of their infamous songs, all the world is indeed a stage and we are merely players performers and portrayers, each another's audience inside the gilded cage. What they're putting forth in that song is that everything is on display, that all the world's a stage, that there is some big drama, there is some big story. Now there's uh, interesting uh, ways to approach this broad story, but, and there's many different stories of the universe, but the one true story found in the scriptures is the fourfold story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. If you want to know what God is doing, you want to know what this big story is all about, it's a four-part story that goes like this, that God created the world, and he created it good, and he put people in the world. So creation, right? If you look at the book of Genesis, you'll find creation. And then very shortly after, people rebelled against God. You have the fall. By the way, some of us remember or may be familiar with the account of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit. Do you think it was about fruit? It was not about fruit, right? This is not all happening because of a produce error. It's a heart of rebellion. That's why the earth is cursed. You have creation, you have fall. But God is not done with us. God did not hit the cosmic reset button. God did not just destroy the universe. Rather, God, in his infinite wisdom, grace, and mercy, has made the story, creation, fall, and then redemption. Redemption. That Christ came. If you uh, are familiar with the holiday of Easter, it's a, it's a time in which we celebrate on Good Friday and Easter the redemption of us, of people. And then finally, Jesus promised not only that he has brought about redemption, but that one day he would return to restore all things, that he would unite everything that's broken, that he would make all that which is broken whole again. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You have it here in the text. In verse four, you have this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you have in that language this idea that God has for like ever, been in complete control of the story. Since from the very beginning, 
even before the beginning. And at that point in time, you have to start talking about the space-time continuum, which if you're a uh, sci-fi fan, hold on to your hats, kids, because we are going to have some treats for you today. If you think about time, even before time began, God has eternally destined this to happen. He is not only created, but he has uh, overseen not only the creation, but also the fall. And in verse 7, you have uh, an implication of the fall. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, in verse 7, you have the word trespasses or our sins. In uh, the Lord's Prayer, some of us are familiar with the Lord's Prayer when Jesus, Jesus taught us to pray in the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the translations will say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You have creation, you have the fall. You also have redemption, and some of you might have caught it in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. That language of blood, it's, it's, it, for, for those of us who aren't followers of Jesus or maybe we're new to this whole church thing, that language of blood, we're always, Christians are always singing about blood, they're always talking about blood. Isn't that a little gothic, right? A little emo, a little Halloween. And the reason that we talk about blood is because it was through the shed blood of Jesus as a sacrifice for sins that God's wrath was satisfied. That's why we're always singing about it. Not because we're Gothic, but because we love Jesus and we want to acknowledge and celebrate and elevate and exalt who he is and what he has done. We have redemption, creation, fall, redemption, then finally restoration, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, fullness of time. Now check this out, verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Unite all things. Let me ask you a question. Does it seem like everything's united right now? I've been on y'all's Facebook. <laughs> Does it seem like things are united right now? In our culture? How about in your life? How about in your family? You don't have to answer. Some of you are like, see, I told you, Pastor. <laughs> to unite all things, restoration, all that which is broken, made whole again. That's the story that we're all a part of. Number two, our part in that story. If all the world's a stage and God has this story and we are playing this story out on the stage, what is our part in that story? I'm glad you asked. But before we do that, some of you who listened or read when we went through the text, you're, you're asking a, a, an interesting question. You, maybe, maybe you saw some of the words. I, 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 let me just go through some of them and see if this brings up a, 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 a problem for you. Uh, verse 4, even as he chose us before the foundations of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. So is history fixed? This language of predestination and and God's plan and the fullness of time and everything coming to be that God sets out is, is fixed. Oh, then maybe you look at verse 13, you see, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's something we do, something I choose to do, I believe. Or maybe you've read ahead to uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, and, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it, and this is what it says. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. That seems like the author is telling me that I need to choose to do something. And so we have this question that we as a people have been wrestling with for like a long time, and that is this. Is history fixed or is history free? Is there a definite plan or do I make, uh, am I responsible for my own actions? We've been wrestling with this since at least the book, or the, the story of Oedipus Rex, but I know that not many of us um, have engaged in Oedipus Rex, and so perhaps some of us would be more familiar with this wrestling match, this ideological uh, wrestling match with the movie Terminator, or Harry Potter, uh, what is it, the third one, The Prisoners of uh, Azkaban or some, anybody want to help me out? Azkaban, did I get that right? Okay, sorry, everybody, I apologize. Um, Lord of the Rings is way better than Harry Potter, but also... Um, <laughs> Terminator, the third Harry Potter, I'm, I know I'm insulting a lot of Harry Potter fans, uh, Looper, the movie Looper with Bruce Willis. Uh, it has this idea, uh, they're time travel movies, aren't they? They're movies in which time travel happens. And in the movie that time travel happens, you, you have this idea that though you could travel through time, history is still fixed. You can't change the future. It's just written. And even though you traveled in time, that was all part of the plan, you see. History is fixed. But then there are other movies that we make and we watch, really deep, theological, profound movies, like Back to the Future, yeah. <laughs> which is also about time travel. And in Back to the Future, you have this idea that history is not fixed, that it's free. You see, there are those of us who think, okay, well, if history is fixed, what does that mean? Alan Watts, who uh, was a philosopher, British philosopher, not a follower of Jesus, but a very good thinker, said this as he summarized this idea that history is fixed. He said, you run from the maternity ward to the crematorium, and that's it, baby. That's it. That's all our life. You're just running from the maternity ward to the crematorium. He goes on to say, you're nothing but a machine. And your idea that you're just a machine, that's a machine too. And so he says this, a stark statement. And so if you're a smart kid, you commit suicide. And what he's elevating there is the despair that comes from believing that you are nothing more than a machine. Do you see? Now, on a lighter note, the great philosopher equal to Alan Watts, Doc Brown, in the Back to the Future movie, yeah. I think it was two or three, one of the characters holds up a note from the future that's being erased, and she says, why is it being erased? What's it mean? And Doc Brown leans over from the train, and he says, it means that your future hasn't been written yet. No one's future has been written yet. Your future is whatever you make of it, so make it a good one for both of you. So which is it? Is it fixed, or are we free? Is there a definite plan, or are we free agents? Do, do our decisions matter? You want to know what the answer is? Yes. This is one of the greatest paradoxes and, and wonderful truths of the Scripture. Because, check this out, when things are going well for us, we don't want a fixed world. We don't want a definite plan. We want to create our own future. We tell it to kids when they graduate. Go out there, you know, Take the world, wrap it up, and put it in your pocket. 
It's yours. It's your future. But then when things are going poorly, we want a plan. When we're in despair and things seem completely out of our control, we do things, for some of us, especially those of us who aren't Christians, we do things that are outside of our normal character. We pray, God, if you exist, would you do something here? You see, we we long for both, depending on our circumstance. Is history fixed or are we free? And the scriptures say, yes, you are responsible for your actions. Uh, The second half of Ephesians is Paul, by the power of the Spirit, appealing to followers of Jesus to do certain things, to make certain choices, to be a way, a certain way. But in the first half, he says, all of that is according to the plan and purpose of God. Now, this paradox, though it makes our ears bleed, and by the way, we are talking about the king creator of the cosmos, and so, of course, all of our thoughts should terminate at some level into mystery. You follow me? If everything about the space-time continuum and our God and our creator made perfect and complete sense to us, we wouldn't sing. But in this paradox, we find responsibility for our behavior and a safe, secure peace that comes with knowing that God is in control. Listen, I pray. This is where the tension exists in my life many times. I pray for my daughter's safety. I got a seven-year-old and I got a one-year-old. I pray for their safety. I pray for my son's safety too, but he's five, so we'll see what happens to him. (laughs) Right, but let me just use my oldest daughter. I pray for Michaela's safety. And I say, God, you, I, I trust that you've got her in your hand. But I strive to not shirk my responsibilities to keep her safe, right? If I pray, God, I, keep her safe. I trust in you to do what's best for my daughter. And she's walking around with like a chainsaw. <laughs> and I don't do anything about it saying, well, history's fixed. Right? Does that make any sense? Is God in complete, absolute control? Yeah. Will all things work out to the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose? Absolutely. Are you responsible for your actions? 100%. And it's within that paradox that we can actually have joy and peace and responsibility. God is sovereignly working our free actions according to his good purpose. So what's our part in this grand story? We are worshipers. That's our part. God is the creator and we are worshipers. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you and I, we're worshipers. We worship something. We're always elevating something. We're always looking at something to give our life dignity, meaning, purpose, and value. And we elevate that thing. And this is the end of the story. Verse 14. Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire of possession of it, so in the future tense, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of God, the glory of God. What's the ultimate end of human history? The ultimate point. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12. Why is all this happening? Why is this story happening? So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14. The praise of his glory. Right? Praise and glory. Do you see? Why is this story happening? What is the point? What is the end? It's the glory of God. So what, we ask. See, that's the type, of, that's the type of, of everything exists to glorify God, and everyone says amen, and then Monday comes, and we're like, why, why does that matter? Why does it matter that 
God's glory is the ultimate end of the story? Good question. We worship, what we worship, the thing that we worship is meant to delight and satisfy us. The thing that we worship, whatever you worship, what you're doing by that worship, you are trying to make that thing both delight and satisfy you. And so what will satisfy you? There are some of us who worship and elevate the things we consume. We worship movies, we worship food, we worship sports, we worship money. We elevate those things to the very center of our hearts. It's the, very, it's the most important thing. We define ourselves by it. But let me ask you, will the things that you consume ultimately satisfy you? Sometimes we strive to satisfy our hearts with the people that we're with, a lover, a, a family, a network of powerful people of which we can be a part. And we say, my life would have dignity, meaning, purpose, and value if I could just get my family to be like I want. <laughs> if my kids would just behave, then I'd be somebody. And if we define ourselves by our family, we will crush our families under the weight of that expectation. How about a lover? There are many of us, especially those of us who are single or, or, or we're longing for somebody, we say, if I could just get somebody in my life, then I would be somebody, then I would be loved. And if you want, you could ask everyone else in the room who has a lover and who's had a, a spouse maybe or someone they've been dating for an extended period of time uh, and ask them if they still have longing in their heart. They do. For some of us, it's a powerful network. We need to be in that circle. We need to know those people. And once we get there, there's just somebody else we gotta meet. There's just some other people we gotta know, and then we'll be somebody. If what we consume is what ultimately satisfy, and who we're with won't ultimately satisfy, maybe how we are will be what gives us meaning, dignity, worth, and value. And so we elevate gender or race, or sexuality, or the ways that we are. We elevate those and say, that's who I am, and that's the most important thing, and I'm gonna worship that thing. But then we grow older. Things start breaking. We catch a glimpse of ourselves in the mirror and say, look at that old person, <laughs> to our shock and horror. So if what we consume won't satisfy us, if who we are with won't satisfy us, if how we are won't satisfy us, if we worship these things and they crumble under the weight of our worship, what will satisfy our hearts as worshipers? Only the Lord. Only the King and Creator of the universe. God is the only one that can actually stand under the weight of our worship. When we elevate the Lord, He never lets us down. We're never embarrassed when we worship the Lord. The Lord always stands under the weight of our worship. He can take it. You follow? Yes. So the ultimate end of the story is the glory of God. So uh, there is this old school theologian named Jonathan Edwards, and he says this, the happiness of the creature consists in the rejoicing in God in a way in which God is magnified and exalted. Another way to put it, John Piper, who's a pastor, also a theologian, says this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us. God is most exalted in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now, chickity, chickity, check. When are you going to be satisfied? 
all the longings of your heart, when will they be satisfied? What do you have on your dreams list that you think, if I could just get that, then I'll be satisfied? All right, is it a vacation? Is it a person? Is it a thing to consume? Is it a job? Is it a network of people? What is it, a family? What is it? What is that thing? You say, that's what's going to give me meaning. That's what's going to give me purpose. That's the most important thing. If I could just get that thing, then I'll be somebody. You're exalting that thing. You're elevating that thing to the center of the universe, saying, if I could just get that, then. And it will crumble under the weight of it. If you, if you strive to be satisfied in the things that you consume, the people that you're with, or the way that you are built... It will crumble under the weight of it. Rather, strive to be satisfied by the one who can actually do that for an eternity. So God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Why are we talking about this? Talking about who is the church? Why is the church? Where is the church? Right? Here is the church. It's us. It's people. Why does the church exist? What, number one, why does the church exist? To glorify God. Why? Because it's the only thing that's going to satisfy us. And the reason that we're especially talking about this today is because as a church of 40 years old, we, could, we have the temptation to glorify our own achievements, to glorify the things that we're doing, the way that we are. Temptation on any celebration is to self-glorify. Walter Wink, who is a theologian with an awesome last name, Walter Wink, said this, that to worship is to remember who owns the house. To worship is to remember who owns the house. Whose story is it? When we exalt Christ through prayers, through our, through our minds, uh, um, leanings, through, through our thoughts, through our actions, through our singing, when we exalt and elevate Christ, when we worship Christ, we're remembering who owns the house and we're glorying and rejoicing and delighting in who he is. And that reminds us that ultimately all the glory goes to the Lord. Check this out. We as a church family want to celebrate paying off our debt. That's awesome, and the glory is all the Lord's. Though we may say thank you to those of us who have given above and beyond, it is not your glory, it is the glory of the Lord's. Follow? When we talk about as a church family striving to grow in diversity, socioeconomic and racial diversity, so that we can better reflect the kingdom of God universal, it is not something we look to and say, good job, Desert Springs. It's something we look to and say, God, you are glorified in this. We glory in you in this because it's only you that could actually do that. Okay? When we talk about, as a church family, uh, increasing our capacities to reach out into this community and seeing more and more people come to know the Lord, when we see baptisms, there can be a temptation to pat ourselves on the back and say, way to go, Desert Springs. And we say, no, no, no. God, you are glorified through this church family. You've been glorified for 40 years. We pray that it goes on until you return. But it's not our glory. The happy birthday, Desert Springs, is glory to Jesus, not to Desert Springs. You with me on that? Okay, so why are we talking about this? We're talking about it to remind ourselves whose house this is. And I don't mean this building. I mean the spiritual house that is the church. In the scriptures, it talks about those of us who are followers of Jesus as interwoven stones built into a spiritual house. Whose house is the church? It's the Lord's. Whose glory is it? It's the Lord's. 
So we have the story. We have our part in the story as worshipers. We have the end of the story, the, the praise and glory of the Lord for, for, for his glory and our joy and the hinge of the story, five through eight. Here we go. He predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Friends, what will satisfy you? Let me ask this. Do you know the grace of God that has been lavished upon you. What fascinating language. When you think about the cross of Jesus Christ, God coming in the flesh, entering the space-time continuum, becoming one of his own creation and subjecting himself to humility, pain, scoffing, crucifixion, forsakenness from the Father, subjecting himself to that, to take on the penalty for our sin, rising again from the grave three days later, conquering over Satan, sin, and death, standing victorious over our enemies so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who repents from their sin and believes in the gospel are saved. Sheerly by his grace, he adopts us as sons and daughters. Friends, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you know that he has lavished his grace upon you? 